The thing with that piece, right, is there's plenty of times where I've gone into somewhere and I've thought, I can already see how this is going to go because you can't help it. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, mate, I was completely wrong. Yeah, maybe I'm saying this with hindsight bias, like you always want to think you could have done more or done better, thinking in an ideal world, we could have found that evidence, we could have spoken to the person who knew the answer. I think that was probably my favourite bit of reporting we did this year, just because we went into such depth on it. I mean, I've, I, there are so many mill stories that I loved, from very small ones to, to really sweeping ones, but it's probably the first time we've really, really been able to like deeply investigate a story as a team. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Welcome to the last episode of the Manchester Weekly of the year. I'm here on a call with Jack Delhanty and Molly, and we are going to talk about our favourite stories this year, as well as the stories that gave us the most stress and the stories that we would do differently on the mill. It's actually our last working day, um, so we're getting all of our stories out for, for the new year and for the Christmas period today, getting them all scheduled, edited. So welcome to the podcast, Molly. You haven't been on for a while. Hi, yeah, it's great to be it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. And Jack, you're there as well. Hello, you're all right. I am all right. Um, let's start with your stories, Jack. So we tried to think before like of our the stories we wanted to talk about. What's the what's the story that stands out as, as, as sort of your favourite or at least one of your favourites? Uh, my easily favourite story of the year was uh, Jack Walton's story about Rochdale Football Club and the group of uh, fans who basically fought to keep control of it against uh, basically like an offshore fund and another company. Uh, I thought it was great. I literally have never cared. And right now I still don't care about amateur football, but that was the one moment in my life where I've actually cared about it because it was just so well told. And I, also I don't know if they'll like right. call it, call it, calling them amateur. Are they amateur? Are they semi-professional? What's the right word? I don't know, but they're not professional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not interested in professional football either, if that if that helps. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was for someone who just doesn't really care about that kind of world to be able to um, have that insight into it in, in such an interesting way. And also because I was sat there when it went through what was one of the more grueling editing processes of the year. So I think now when I read it, I see, uh, I guess as well, when you see that sort of behind the scenes thing of how these pieces come together, you, when you read them, you see like an extra layer of work that's gone into them that the average reader probably doesn't. What do you remember about that editing process? Because I, I, I remember it as well. Oh uh, yeah, I just remember being sat in the meeting room with um, Sophie and Sophie was editing it and obviously Jack was there because he'd written it. Oh no, Jack was at the pub, ringing back, with basically contesting every other sentence that Sophie had edited. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite funny. But it was also like, it was a grueling one because it, it was just one of those stories with so many moving parts and so many different characters. So to be able to kind of man all of those stories and hold all of those threads whilst also keeping a reader interested was like a real triumph of writer and editor partnership, I think. But also... Big shout out to Sophie there because she did a lot, a hell of a lot of heavy, heavy lifting that evening to keep that, um, to keep that one on track. I think. <laughs> I actually really remember that because Sophie is Sophie Atkinson, our senior editor. Is she's not normally that into football. Let's say I'd say you and her are equally not into football, whereas Molly and I are. And I was in Sussex at my mum's, 
And I was getting all these WhatsApps from both Jack Walton and Sophie, where they were both asking me about this edit. And Sophie had taken out an entire section of the piece because she thought it was like too in the weeds. It was too under the sort of bonnet of Rochdale AFC. And I've got all these messages. I'm actually looking through my WhatsApp now. I, I reckon I can find them. <laughs> You've got like Jack Walton messaging me being like, it's really important that the Nancy boys detail goes back in. It's a key indicator of the guy, of the person. And then um, you've got Sophie coming in being like, I've had to take out this whole section. I didn't even understand what was going on. And there was a whole section called football purgatory, which got completely taken out. Um, so yeah, that was <laughs> that was a classic Jack Walton edit, actually, because he never just rolls over and accepts if you rip stuff out of his pieces. He will always fight tooth and nail <laughs> for each paragraph to go back in. And he really fought. I, I was even on the morning we published, I'm getting all these screenshots from him being like, Can we have this back in? Can we have that back in? Um yeah, so that ended up being a banger, actually. Really cool insight into a I think it is a professional club, by the way. I think they pay them money. They might not pay them a much, but it definitely feels like it's professional. Um, what about the story that caused you the most stress, Jack? I'm going to do two for two different reasons. So one that caused me the most real stress, and what I would say is like legitimate stress, is uh, the profile that I wrote about Javon Morgan and his experiences with violent crime in Moss Side, only because... One, it took a lot of interviewing of various different people to, to get to the point where I could interview him, just sort of one-on-one. But also I took quite a lot of like license with the story. I don't want to call it creative license because it definitely wasn't. That gives the impression that it was like fictional. It wasn't, obviously. But it was, it was just kind of like the way that I told the story was much more uh, narrative, which isn't normally the way... Well, it is often in uh, other magazines it is, but I think it like... I don't want to say like in the UK, but I think when we report on like quite sensitive stuff or violent things or things that are very personal to people, you sometimes just want to keep it as kind of the word I'm looking for, I can't find, but I want to say like dry, like impersonal, like you don't want to basically overstep the mark and look like you're taking their story away from them so that you can indulge in a kind of narrative um, that you yourself can write. Indulge is the right word, isn't it? Like you don't want to look like you are being indulgent or the, or that you are being exploitative. Like there's this whole kind of true crime genre, which is like very, very juicy, but it's also very, very exploitative of 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 some families and stuff. And if, if listeners don't remember this story, this was a story, what was the headline of it, Jack? When will Mossad get a chance to mourn, I think? Yeah, people should search that if, if they want to read this story, but... Uh, the, there was also the, the story was about the trauma that's brought about by you know cycles of violence in in, in one particular neighborhood and um, the trauma that and, and and how that impacts the lives of people living there and you also did a really good podcast where I, I think you spoke to Daryl about it um, about the story and and, um, and and also your thought process is going through it so if people want a bit more depth on that there's an, there's a really good podcast I think one of our better ones definitely on that I really liked how it was um more about the emotional reality of like you say Yoshi these cycles of violence rather than like I think we've all heard a lot of context about Mossad and its kind of history and its social history but it was really interesting just to have that human story and see how someone has lived through that 
Yeah, exactly. It actually takes the idea of making doing a human story to a bit of a new level when you're engaging with that level of like the emotional trauma and the the interior lives of people. I thought it was really outstanding and had had that very had that very beautiful ending to it as well. Have you actually got it to hand, Jack? Could you read out that final paragraph? Yeah, I'll find it. The thing I think as well, because we're talking about it, and like Molly was saying before, place with my side, it's quite a well-covered place already. You were, The story itself was basically telling readers a story that they already knew and had heard, but in a way that would be more impactful, rather than if you wrote it in a way that, like we were talking about before, as you wouldn't in a conventional news report. The final uh, paragraph just reads... He still dreams of them sometimes, Sharif, Sait, Dalroy, Riano, Rumikel. In the bad ones, he's in prison with them, but there are good ones too. He dreamt he was at a birthday party for Sait, who was being stubborn about the cake and how he wanted to. He dreams of Sharif and the others being there and just walking around the estate with them, planning the weekend. When they were last out, they were just kids. Now they'd have grown up and things would have been different. So it was kind of like... It, I think so. when Sophie edited that, she was kind of saying it almost reads like a short story rather than... And, and again, that's not out of personal writerly indulgence. It's more because if I would have... I thought when I was writing, I either write it the conventional way and it will be the conventional way that people have read before and it probably won't have much of an effect. Or, you know, people will be like, this is terrible, but it, it, it will still kind of roll on. It will roll into all the other pieces, whereas if you want something that will actually really... Um, hit a reader you have to try and you know i think that's basically why i wrote it that way is because i wanted it to have more emotional impact and thankfully it did pay off but in the process of writing it i was very stressed because <laughs> i was like am i sort of taking this story as my own when i, I don't have the license to yeah no, that makes sense and finally a story you do differently and just to let listeners in on our internal processes. As you said before this call, you couldn't think of a story you'd do differently. And then I reminded you that we were at the um, Manchester Art Fair and you had said to me, oh, I wish I'd done the Chinatown one a bit differently because you bumped into someone there and, and, and they were giving you your thoughts on it. So is that fair? Would, would, would you write that Chinatown one now maybe in a slightly less pessimistic way? Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually bumped into two separate people at the Manchester Art Fair who told me <laughs> <laughs> that, the, uh, that the Chinatown piece was absolutely bang average. <laughs> I didn't say that, uh, but <laughs> they might as well have. That's how I took it anyway. Um, but no, yeah, I did. I think like sometimes, and I hate to admit it, I think you do become wedded to an idea and then you kind of like, you've had your you know, preconception, because whether you're a, you know, ultra impartial journalist or not, which I'm not anyway, but you, you can't fight a preconception. So you go into something thinking like, you know what you're going to find. And then the thing with that piece, right, is there's plenty of times where I've gone into somewhere and I've thought, right, this is exactly, I can already see how this is going to go because you can't help it. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, mate, I was completely wrong. Um, and this is actually how it is. And that's what you write. And that's all well and good. With the Chinatown, what it was like, I went into it thinking I was going to see something. And then I did see it. But then I also saw that I was brought to other things that counteracted what I thought. It was kind of like, oh, this is a lot more like sinewy than I had originally thought. Like, there are some problems, but it's mostly fine. But you can't help but you're like, look at this long forecast for the area. And there's no real 
short-term solution and it was just kind of like how do I write this in a way that you know balances all this out without basically having to write like a dissertation about Chinatown for what was meant to be just a kind of not light-hearted weekend read but it wasn't meant to be like okay let's get into the the nitty-gritty of the future of Chinatown like you're just kind of like a new place is opened and it's a new competitor to an old place how is that dynamic going to work and the boring real answer is <laughs> that dynamic will probably be fine and the way that I saw it was kind of like if you look very very long term this place will last and this place won't and some people disagreed. There are a couple of things going on. There's one journalistic bias, which is that I think a lot of journalists and probably a lot of people have this pessimism bias where when you're writing about something, the negative details, i.e. like some of the things in the story, like, well, look, a lot of the families running the restaurants, like the, the younger kids in the family don't want to run the restaurant anymore. So that's a real long-term threat to the authenticity of Chinatown, right? Or the integrity of Chinatown those details just tend to weigh on us more heavily with this and therefore you end up with a more pessimistic piece i also think just as a huge trap as journalists that we as you say we go into a story with a hypothesis and then we engage in sort of confirmation bias or we let confirmation bias run riot and the details that confirm the hypothesis we take on board and the details that complexify or, or actually push against the hypothesis i.e actually when you go to chinatown a lot of the restaurants look really full a lot of the young chinese students in manchester are going as well as loads of you know uh people who are not chinese so and and, and i think yeah maybe maybe that's what slightly happened there is you didn't quite allow for the new information to correct your hypothesis or to complexify it would that be kind of broadly fair yeah i think as well the other thing was there are almost, I don't want to say there wasn't a story there in the first place, but it's like sometimes you do find yourself where you, you go somewhere expecting a certain level of, not conflict, but like issue. Like you think like, someone must be having a problem with this, but then when you get there and everyone's like, actually, it's not that bad. You're just kind of like, oh, right. Oh, great. <laughs> that, that's, that sounds, that's all really great. And then like, I remember when I sat down with the owners of the new place and they, <laughs> I feel terrible now. But like, when we sat down with them and I was saying all this stuff like, you know, do you worry that you're going to be, uh, t- you know, basically cutting customers off from Chinatown? They were like, fully stressing out about it like no this isn't what we ever wanted <laughs> and i was like to be fair it's not even happening i'm just throwing absolute hypotheticals at you and stressing you out for no reason i'm so <laughs> sorry <laughs> and like i went away from it and that's why i think the piece doesn't really find any conclusion it just kind of like opens all of these arguments and then just leaves them quite open because i think in a way as well it's a bit of an unanswerable question how can you work out what will happen to a district of a city at all like there's no real way of predicting it so I still thought it was a, it was a very nicely written piece, uh, but I I think I probably agree with you that we didn't check ourselves enough to be like actually there's a really positive story here. It's just it goes back to that sort of very very old journalism thing of we're always trying to impose a narrative line on disparate sort of conflicted information because we like neat stories. You know that's the case, isn't it? In, in life, we people like neat stories that have a neat narrative arc, and sometimes you think a story will, there's this new thing and it's going to destroy this old thing. And then when you look at it, actually, it's not really that, or it's only a bit that, and it's it's sometimes hard to to write a story that really properly reflects that reality. So anyway, no, that's, that's very interesting reflections on that. Um, okay, Molly, over to you. Um, 
So you obviously were working in Liverpool on the post, our sister newsletter, for like half the year, which is why podcast listeners won't have heard that much of you this year on the, on the podcast. But you've also done some amazing stuff when you've been back in Manchester. And you also worked for The Mill before you went to Liverpool um, as well. So you've done, you've done a ton of mill reporting. Uh, re- listeners will be probably less aware of you than, than, than readers. But, but tell us about, tell us about a, a particular story that, that, that really struck you this year on the mill. Yeah, so um, I've been in Liverpool, but obviously been um, the mill's number one fan. So I've been, been reading a lot. And the story, I think, when I was scrolling through the other day to think what's probably my favourite story from this year, there was one that's always raced out in my mind, and that was Jack Delhanty's story about uh, Tiffany, who is a single mother from Bolton who uh, died with her two children. And Jack was attending the inquest um, to determine whether the murder-suicide was an unlawful killing or not. The outcome of this would determine, so if Tiffany was a sound mind when her and her children died, it would be an unlawful killing. If she wasn't, then the line Jack wrote said uh, it would remain the tragedy it already was. And I, I guess I... This story stood out to me is because it garnered a lot of media attention. And I remember hearing that the room was filled with journalists. I saw Twitter threads about the story. But I felt that the way we wrote it was a lot more searching. It asked some hard questions. It gave Tiffany's life a lot of context. Um, it was very sensitively done. And it got a huge reaction from readers at the time. I think it came out last January. So um, that's a story that, that really stood out to me personally. Yeah, I, I remember editing that one actually around that time that we started to do more of these inquests, and um, you have to obviously be careful with how you report inquests, just like you do with like legal cases, because of the various restrictions and and sort of the the ethics around it. But the nice thing about that was that, yeah, as you say, you felt like you really knew, you understood her and her life and her motivations much more than you would from a regular. Um, report and I think like uh, legal reporting can be quite flattening like people can come across as quite two-dimensional characters and it was nice how that how in that piece people came across in there in more of their full humanity is that part of the reason reading that piece was I don't I can't remember if I've got the chronology right but was that part of the reason why you started to do some more court stories because you did a couple of great ones from Liverpool yeah no definitely I mean um yeah it was about how um I guess for me, how you can turn the kind of strange bureaucracy of the end of someone's life being decided, you know, the, those tragic final moments being condensed into a like a legal situation and how you can turn that into something that, that feels human and, and real. And um, yeah, I guess like we were talking about earlier with um, the David Morgan story and how true crime reporting can can often have a certain tone or... Uh, a certain mood and ways that we can kind of subvert that and think okay who are the the people behind this and um yeah how how do we approach this in a different way yeah for sure um what about the story that you would do differently if you were doing it today yeah so this is a strange one because I actually mentioned in this piece how I I had regrets about this story so it's funny that I'm still thinking about it now um this is a story I wrote about um a spiking incident in the northern quarter it began with a girl called Laura uh whose name's been changed but she got in contact with me about um a night out 
uh, on a first date where she believed she was spiked and the CCTV was lost and the police hadn't followed it up. Um, we spent a, a good like amount of time investigating this like for a few weeks. I remember um, me and Yoshi went to went to the bar and tried to ask some people, you know, what what happened to the CCTV? Do you remember this girl coming in and asking for it? I'd actually try to go myself and look at the camera systems they had to see if we could investigate. Was there any way this could have been lost accidentally? I, I don't know if you remember, Yoshi, but then we visited again the following week and <laughs> the bartender had this CCD, CDB photo of me. He was like, is this you? And <laughs> what had happened is they'd caught stills of me looking around and they thought we were like casing the joint um they thought we were yeah he was like we thought you were casing us and we were like <laughs> what does that mean and he was like it means when a rob robbery like gang or whatever sends a, an advanced party to like do a recce basically right yeah yeah they thought we were um <laughs> we would have been looking into them so that was quite funny but yeah so we've been looking into it and just nothing turned up so what ended up happening was that we we returned to it, we broadened it out to a wider investigation and, and spoke to a lot of people. But, you know, to give a, a kind of fuller picture of what was happening with the spiking incidents in the city, but it, it did always haunt me that we never really found out what happened there. You know, why was this crucial piece of evidence that, that could have really um, changed things for the victim? Why was that lost and, and what happened there? So, And, and, and in, terms of, in terms of doing it differently, I mean, like, to me, it feels like you really, really, really tried to do a story about this one young woman's in- experience, and we weren't able to get enough just to do a story on, you know, her and the bar and and the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator. So we broadened it out to be a story not just about her, but about these other women and why this is such a um, pernicious type of offense and also why it's so hard to report on but like what would you actually do differently other than like there being more evidence do you think we could have actually done anything differently yeah that's a good point I mean yeah maybe I'm saying this with hindsight bias like you always want to think you could have done more or done better which is natural so yeah maybe I'm I'm thinking in an ideal world we could have found that evidence we could have spoken to the person who knew the answer who knew who controlled the cctv whether it could have erased automatically whether it's deliberate we could have found out who actually spiked laura so that was an interesting thing as well she she was really unsure as to who actually spiked her when she was on this date when me and you went to that um pub bar a couple of times it was interesting because we were going at a time when it wasn't that busy there were some people sitting at the tables and we were looking around we were like god there are loads of cameras if a guy put a pill into a into a drink, you know, in in this bar, you would be able to see it on the camera. Like you'd be able to see the hand going over the. And then when we were chatting to the guy, he was like, "Well, it's really, really busy." So I, we came back at a time when it was really, really busy. One time, I remember it was like heaving, and well, maybe I did that on a Friday night or something. And I walked in and I was like, "Ah, now I get the problem." Like 90% of people in here, if something happened, you wouldn't see it because there'd be other people in front of it. Like it's heaving in here, you know? Yeah. And karaoke heaving. And suddenly it was like, ah, okay, now this story is going to be harder because it's not just a question of do they have the CCTV? It would also be a question of if they had the CCTV, would it even show you anything interesting? 
and it, it, it put it made the story harder because it was harder to say well why the hell didn't police go ahead with this because it's like well even if they'd got the right camera they might not have actually seen it so it was a bit of a sort of education for us as well there um with that with that kind of thing that was the interesting thing because in a way that kind of frustration like what we don't know and what we can't find out in a way became the story and I found out that that was the common thread between a lot of the conversations I had with um, women who believed they'd been spiked in Manchester city centre was that they never quite knew what went on. They had these big gaps in memory. CCTV didn't pick up anything. It was this very discreet little action often, often happens on busy, busy nights out. Um, So there's this particular difficulty with spiking cases. And yeah, it was interesting that that, in a way, that kind of failure to to get the conclusion we wanted in our investigative reporting, that kind of failure became the angle. Um, but yeah, I guess the reason I want to do it differently is because you always want to get that conclusion. You always want to be able to, you know, tell the person, I think this is what happened to you. But yeah, realistically, could we have done it? I I don't know. I like to think so, but um yeah yeah it might it might also be one where like if we had more resources we might have been able to crack it open but i thought it was i thought it was a brilliant piece and hopefully listeners can go and have a listen to it finally um i want to ask you maybe a bit more briefly this time uh, just about the thing that caused you most stress yeah the, the thing that caused me the most stress in the office so I would probably say this story um the strange case of the south manchester stalker so this was kind of like a an essay piece about uh, a period of media reporting after the death of Sarah Everard and looking at how national and local newspapers responded. Um, There was a huge nationwide reckoning with the safety of women and particularly in cities. And I kind of, I saw this story in the Manchester Evening News about a stalker terrorizing women across South Manchester. When you looked at the actual detail of the story. Was that the the word that the MEN used, terrorizing? Yeah, it was a quote unquote, uh, a stalker is terrorizing women across South Manchester and it's never been caught. But when you actually read the story, um, you f- you find that it, it's this block of flats in Wally Range and there's little evidence for being across South Manchester. And the reason we were quite <laughs> pedantic with the, the language here, I guess, is because it made me wonder whether there was this strange cycle at play where women were feeling more fearful for their safety, naturally so, after Sarah Everard's death, and the media was picking up on that, or whether the media could also be part of generating that fear and creating this kind of um, real public concern and and panic about safety. I I just felt like that headline could have been approached with a more sensitive hand, so... And it it wasn't just the headline, was it? It was the actual piece. You would have thought, reading the piece, or the first few paragraphs that there was this real present threat to women's safety in South Manchester, a stalker who's never been caught terrorising women. And once you actually looked into it, it was sourced from a single person. Um, The police said that they hadn't found any evidence. And, you know, it was like, I, I guess you ended up thinking after looking into it for quite a while, there may or may not have been like this, 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 this particular individual but the way it was reported made it really really ginned up um the fear and made it into a much bigger story than 
the facts would like kind of like reasonably allow you to conclude that that, that, that it should be. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, there was a really strange pattern of of disturbing and unusual behaviour around this block of flats, and and some women were naturally feeling very afraid. But um, I think the way the Manchester Evening News presented the threat was it it felt like too much. Like, I mean, as a woman living in South Manchester at the time, it it felt very concerning. So um, that felt like a a real concern for me. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess the reason this caused me stress was because it's it's such a sensitive topic to talk about women's safety and to criticise media reporting around it. It makes you wonder, are you unintentionally feeding into a narrative where you're calling these fears into question? Are you suggesting that women's safety is up for debate? Um, and, you know, are, are you doing dis- a disservice to a fellow journalist who, you know, went into this with probably like a a public service intention so um those were yeah those were a lot of questions that went through my mind and it took us I think months of, of editing and refining and, and having conversations about this piece to to kind of get it right but within that time I did I did think a lot about the people in the story I thought a lot about the journalists I thought a lot about Sarah Everard and and whether we were kind of getting this right so yeah that was an internal <laughs> a big internal stress for me yeah I definitely remember that um, now I think Daryl's not with us on this week's podcast because um, I think he I think he might be on a holiday. I think he's in Italy actually because he sent us a picture of himself on a train run by the same com- company as Avanti. Maybe it is called Avanti. Anyway, so he's in Italy. But fortunately, before he went to Italy, he sent us a clip of where he talks about his favourite mill stories of the year, and I think we can play that now. Hello there, Daryl here. Thank you for letting me share some of my best moments of 2022 with you, some of my my picks of mill stories from the year. Sorry I couldn't be there for the recording of this episode. Just couldn't take any more chat about the English National Opera, I'm afraid. Just one podcast too many, this. Uh, in amongst talking about the English National Opera and Piccadilly Gardens and the trains, uh, we did manage to find some time to do some other stories, didn't we? I think the one that, I think if you were to nail me down for one story, it would be the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. And I think it probably is testament to how massive a moment that was, how, how that, that story sort of shook the foundations of so much of what we know that this podcast that we do, that's aimed at the people of Manchester, this sort of small local podcast, spent several episodes dedicated to that story. I will never forget the day that I walked into that Ukra- that, that um, Eastern European store on Berry New Road and spoke to Oksana, who is Ukrainian, who whose mum was in Ukraine still at that moment as that war unfolded in those early days, and just watching the emotion bubble up in her and how she told the story of this community in Manchester who were effectively one community, right? The, the Ukrainian and Russian people uh, of Manchester communities of Manchester are, you know, they see, they, they walk in lockstep, they see each other as being part of the same community. And and, and actually how some of the cracks of that had started to appear with the, the the propaganda that Vladimir Putin's regime had sowed the seeds of over the last few years of the Ukrainians being, you know, full of um, Nazis and it effectively being a Nazi state and how Oksana flying her Ukrainian flag was in some way support for fascism and for Nazis. Um, and, and her feeling that from some of her Russian customers who would point that out to her when they were coming in, give you a sense of how Vladimir Putin's propaganda from, from the Kremlin has landed in Manchester. That was just really fascinating and troubling and 
in disturbing in equal measure, but also, of course, human and seeing the, the, the human response from her and the visceral human response from people of Manchester who came together for those sort of vigils of solidarity and protests in those early days and the way that we covered those. Incredibly proud, actually, to have been part of that and incredibly proud to have been able to speak to some of those people. The other story that stands out to me, of course, uh, is um, one from quite recently, I guess, and it was one of Danny's final pieces with us and with the mill of a death unseen, which is the story of a, a man who had died without a next of kin in Manchester. And this is Anthony Doran, known as Tony. And the journey that Danny went on to try to understand her own emotion, how she felt suddenly so emotionally attached to this man, having been to uh, his funeral with a celebrant who'd put this funeral on, who'd, who'd kind of you know, been part of this um, council funeral, I guess. And the journey that she'd taken to try to discover who this person was and the weird twists and turns that took it. She wasn't, he wasn't quite the person that she thought he was, and then he was again, and how her emotional roller coaster unfolded was really, really impactful. And I think it also perhaps just gives us a bit of a sense of how we treat people in society, right? Uh, the other story that I would point out is that of Jack Hilton, which I thought was really beautifully told by Jack Chadwick. This being Jack Hilton, the working class writer of the early part of the century, last the last century, who'd written Caliban Shrieks and who'd kind of gone missing, really, hadn't he? You know, in, in, in the, the history books, really. Uh, he hadn't had the same kind of impact as some other working class writers. And how you contrast that with, say, the road to Wigan Pier and Jack Hilton, I think, rejecting the idea of being part of that and the way in which he cut his own path and wrote his own world and... It's really beautiful, actually, really beautifully written, a wonderful story, really well told. And the other story that I would perhaps point to is from much, much earlier this year, there was a story by Jack Walton where he considered the fortunes of Rochdale AFC and he followed the story of uh, a group of sort of, you know, a group of fans who have some ownership over the club trying to save Rochdale AFC. I think if you contrast that with the story of Oldham Athletic this year, who fell out of the Football League, and then previously Michael of Bolton Wanderers, of course, and then Barry, who together were on their way out. Barry, of course, ended up going into administration and, and, and being expelled from the Football League and going out of business. And Bolton, we survived and continued to play on. These institutions that have been at the centre of our communities for over a century now, in pretty much all of those cases, um, wobbling this last couple of years and and shaking a little bit. And that, I think, is a real story of our times. I think it's a real story of how our communities are shifting and these anchors that have been such a important hold in our communities, the things around which we build our lives, starting to wobble and shake slightly and be taken advantage of by rogue characters too, right? but still at the end of the week on a Saturday afternoon become meccas for football fans, for the people of Rochdale, Oldham, Bolton, sadly no longer Barry. And I think it perhaps drove home to me the importance of looking after these institutions at the heart of our communities, the important role that they play. Thank you for letting me chat those through. From me, have a peaceful Christmas and we'll see you in the new year. Okay, so that was Daryl talking about his favourite Mill stories of the year. And obviously, he's been a huge part of the Mill this year, um, hosting the podcast, doing some reporting for the podcast, and, and much more of that to come next year. I suppose to finish off by talking about my own ones. I mean, Jack, we worked together on the big homelessness investigation, so I might bring in you, you in to talk about that too. But 
I think that was probably my my favourite bit of reporting we did Jesse this year, just because we went into such depth on it. I mean, I've, I, there are so many mill stories that I loved from very small ones to to really sweeping ones, but it's probably the first time we've really, really been able to like deeply investigate a story as a team. And it meant that we could use like the data scientists from the University of Manchester who were like seconded to us. Um, it, I was on it for a bit. You were on it. Uh, Alexandria Slater was on it. Olivia Davidson was on it. So it was felt like a real team effort where everyone brought different things in. And I think it gave readers a more comprehensive view of homelessness in Manchester, why the numbers in temporary accommodation are so high, and how actually there is a big role in those numbers for council incompetence, but also systems not working. We got internal kind of documents and reports that showed that. And I think it puts a new complexion on sort of one of the one of the city's most most difficult issues. It took us, what did it, did it take us about six months in total? What, what's your sort of memory of working on that? Yeah, it was six months total. Um, <clears throat> started in February, uh, published in August, didn't we? Yeah. I remember like, like you were saying, it was so sweet. It, it felt like the first time where, well, obviously the first time for me, but also I guess the first time for the moment, where we've been able to investigate every facet of something. Where it wasn't just like, we're going to zoom in on this one part and we're going to do that really well. It was like, we're going to work out the systems behind it. We're going to look at, oh, someone just delivered a letter. Uh, we're going to look at the systems behind <laughs> it. We're going to look at the data. We're going to go out and speak to people who are experiencing it. We're going to find like every single sort of point of contact with this issue. We're going to delve deeper into it. Like I remember, I look at my diary from that time and I had like, it was, it, you know, when you say like you worked on something for six months, you think like you did a little bit of it every other week, maybe for six months, but this was like every other day we were talking about it. Every other day we were interviewing someone about it quite solidly for six months. Like we gathered so much information for the piece. I just remember it being very full on in that way. Yeah, yeah. It was full on and it was also satisfying because actually we felt like we were really understanding this issue. And I think for me, it created a bit of a template as well, which is that we've been able to do that story because we had, you know, great intern Alexandria helping us. We had Olivia and the data team from the University of Manchester helping us. But it it gave me a bit of an idea of what we'll be able to do in future when we've got more people. I think when, you know, when you've got five or six reporters working on just the mill, you will be able to say, well, you two are going to do this for this amount of time. It might not be the only story you do over that period, but it's going to be your big focus. And I think if we it showed that we can do really, really high quality data stuff alongside uh, more sort of human reporting. So that was satisfying. The story that I, th- I think I would do differently, well, actually, I don't know if I would definitely do it differently, but the, I guess the story where I, th- I, would th- I would, I've thought about whether I should have done it differently was the Royal Exchange story I did, which is actually one of our most popular stories. It got loads and loads of members. It was about the troubles at the Royal Exchange during the pandemic, the way that they laid off their staff, the why the theatre had gone dark for a period, the leadership problems they had. And it centred on this interview I had with three of the artistic directors, or I guess two artistic directors and one non-artistic director. And the interview had been quite brutal. And and I I really felt in the interview like these directors were not properly engaging with the way that they had cut down the size of their staff during the pandemic. 
So I really felt like they needed to be held account to account for like, they had radically cut back their staff. There are a lot of ex staff members who'd spent decades there who felt badly treated. I had spoken to about six or seven former staff members who felt really, really badly treated. And I went into that interview quite fiery, quite like, I'm going to hold them to account. I'm going to ask them about the numbers. How many people did you lay off, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't think they answered those questions very well. But because they didn't answer those questions very well, it made for quite a brutal piece, which I don't wasn't really planning. Like I, it made for a piece where it felt quite personal. It was like, here are the quotes from this interview. Here's my encounter with these people. Here's them struggling to answer the questions here. And, you know, I did think some of their answers weren't, weren't great. I think there were real questions in that piece about whether the theatre had lived up to its sort of public ethos about working in the community and representing, you know, working class communities and that kind of thing. But I think, you know, maybe it's because they're in the same building as us. But I, you know, I've I've bumped into those people, the artistic directors. I've bumped into them in the corridor a few times going up to the mill office. We're on the fifth floor. I think they're on a second. And... I've sat in the cafe where I've done the interview. So I've I've had more reasons to think back on, God, could I have soft-pedaled that a bit more? Could I have given them a little bit more benefit of the doubt? You know, running a really, um, you know, an organization during the pandemic, not having enough money, having to lay people off. It must have been really tough for them as well. And may, so maybe something I'd do differently is I'd, I'd have more acknowledgement of how difficult it must have been for them and also reflected that it was really, really difficult for the people who they laid off and, and still asking, I think, the searching questions. But maybe just giving their perspective a little bit more is how I would do that, do that one differently. Um, the most stress, I mean, was definitely Manor. The story we did about Manor, the Michelin-starred restaurant in um, in Ancoats. Yeah, wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think you guys can all remember, like, as we came up to that, published published day i think jack we, we were going to publish it in like december and then we we're going to publish it in early january and then we ended up publishing i think in late january early february sort of thing yeah we had all sorts of delusions about when, <laughs> when, when it was going to publish yeah i always try and give you guys a published date and then we work really hard and then it's you have to push it for whatever reason but yeah just the there was the legal aspect which was we're making really really serious allegations about someone they're going to impact their reputation, maybe their business. We have to be so sure. So there was so much of me saying, look, this is really, really serious. You need to get another source. So you were going back to your sources a lot. I think there were 15 or 16 people, Jack, who you had interviewed. And you kept on going back to them. And that can be difficult, going back to people and say, hey, one more thing. My editor wants to know, did you witness the thing where this happened? Did you hear about this? Were you in a group chat with this? And And... So there was that. And I, I I remember the published day was stressful. I had a friend coming up from London. It was a Friday. She wanted to like hang out and go to a bar. And then we were going to go to Old Trafford to watch football. And I was like, I remember being at Old Trafford still like, but barely kind of speaking to my friend Matilda, really still trying to decompress, you know, from that afternoon where effectively we had to make the decision. We are publishing tomorrow. We are making these extremely extremely damaging claims and you know just going over and over again do we have this triple source do we have five sources on this one there were some of them we literally had like five different people giving us an account there were times when we were going back to people being like is this group chat screenshot definitely legit like can you take a screenshot of the same group chat at the time and send it to us it was that was um that was a big decision and i think the thing about editing is you can take all the advice you want like we had a lawyer 
a really, really high, you know, highly qualified lawyer who we are paying to to, to legal piece. So you have lawyers, and I had Sophie there, who I respect massively as an editor. I had Harry, who I respect, respect massively as an editor. You were the reporter on it. Other people in the office had read it. So you can kind of take all the soundings you want. Then there's a moment where you have to decide, you know. Um, and, and most stories, that's not a big moment. But I think that was maybe one of the first times since I started The Mill where I really, really just had to decide, you know, like what 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 are we doing here? Because there's always the option to push it back a week or push it back a day or, and, and, and generally that, you know, generally you, you, you can do that, but at some point you've just got to say, you know, are we happy with this? So I, I remember that being not a lonely moment because there are so many people who I really respect and trust around me, but nevertheless, there is a certain loneliness as an editor to having to make that call. And, and 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 that was stressful. There was no doubt that that was stressful. I remember even hours after, as I say, when I was at the football, still feeling like literally feeling that sort of stress in my body. So that was a lot. I mean, it must have been stressful for you as well. Yeah, it was. Not in the build-up because I think like in the build-up it was more like anticipation and you were more stressed about the fact that... I Well, I was more stressed about the fact that it hadn't been published yet, if that makes sense. Like I was kind of like, will this be published? I really want it to be published because I've spent so much time on it and I believe in it. And it was kind of like, this is serious stuff and I understood that, but it was also like it it, it needed to, you know, happen. Um, the, the day it went out, funnily enough, my sister had just bought uh, a house a few months before. So she'd moved out and my mum and dad both booked a weekend away. <laughs> and I was just at home completely on my own in the house and it went out and so many people were like reacting it reacting to it and tweeting about it and I was just sat there with my phone going you know just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and you were messaging me about it and I was literally just like ah and there was like no one I could speak to I was just sat there watching my phone go off oh man that was awful but after a few hours it wore off I remember that being very stressful but in the in the time before it no because I think like the other thing about that story was most of the stressful part of the reporting happened before, like as in last year, didn't it? The the last two months, although the bulk of the reporting was on the year before, the meaningful reporting, like the stuff where we really got stuff out of people, not out of people, but where people came forward and it was like, oh God, that was like January, end of January, very beginning of February and then published. So yeah, that was a, a busy, stressful time. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a brilliant story. It's one of the best we published. It was also a lot to publish it and to get it to get it ready um so yeah <laughs> here's to more of those in the new year um here's to more stress that was a good run through of the stories we've done this year thanks so much to all of our listeners who've been listening to us all year we've got some really loyal listeners if you enjoy enjoyed this podcast we'd really love you to share it on social media or just to put the link down a group chat or whatever other people in manchester to listen to it please do rate us on um Apple Podcast, rate us on Spotify. Thank you so much to Rafaro, who's been um, who's on the call, but you never hear her. She's um, been producing it and editing it all year. And to Audio Always, everyone at Audio Always, who's helped us out this year. It's been so much fun. Thanks to Daryl. Hopefully he'll listen to this on his delayed Italian train, Avanti train. And um, we really look forward to, to coming back next year and talking about more stories and doing more, more of the kind of journalism. If you'd like to support us, and to allow us to do more journalism, please go to manchestermill.co.uk and become a subscriber. That is the ultimate gift you could get for us this Christmas. And um, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2023.